Amen. You can be seated. I'm glad you're here tonight. I know we have a couple hundred people over in the East Sanctuary cheering on their children as they uh, race their little rally cars. And uh, we're grateful for the joy and encouragement that our children are getting tonight. And we're thankful for our WANA ministry. But I'm thankful for tonight. I'm thankful that you're here. Uh, get your handout out in a pen. And uh, if your pew has a seatbelt on, it'd be a great night for you to put it on because you're going to. Or an airbag. An airbag, maybe. Something. Uh, I don't know how many thousands of uh, sermons I've preached, and I don't know how many hundreds and hundreds of series I've done. I can tell you that uh, this is unlike anything else I've ever done. I can tell you that there's going to be times, even tonight, that you're going to feel like I'm stretching your capacity to follow. But I'm just asking you in advance to just hang in there. And uh, it's going to pay off in the end. But it's going to be a journey to get there. Okay? Now... Here's how you need to understand this conversation we're about to embark on. When, we, when my wife and I get in the car and we start to go somewhere, and I say, honey, uh, do you hear that? Is that a noise? Do you hear that noise? Turn the radio off, turn the air conditioner off. Do you hear that noise? Uh, what, you know, what is that? And she completely tunes me out. The only thing she cares about is the, if you put the key in and you turn it, does it crank up and you put it in drive and press the gas and go. She doesn't care nothing about what the gauges say. Trust me, even the gas. Doesn't care about that. Doesn't care about any noise, rattle. Doesn't care about how you fix it, how it got there, how, who invented it, what it needs. Useless information. She just wants to drive. Okay. That's the way she looks at uh, the kinds of things that I'm going to talk to you about tonight. And some of you think like her, I know. In other words, when I'm, when I'm uh, reading some book I'm really excited about, or this happened all the time when I was in seminary, I would, uh, I would you know, come in there and I'd say, honey, come in here. I mean, she learned, do not ask Tony, you know, hey, what are you reading? She doesn't ever ask me that, ever. And uh, I'd say, you know, oh, I'm uh, reading a book on superlapsarianism. <laughs> she would go, no one cares about that. You're the only, nobody cares about that. And why would they care about that? And no one wants to know what that is. They don't want to spell it. You know, and I'm, and so she's just, she just says, I don't need that. I just, I know uh, what's true, and that's all I need to know, and I don't even need to know why. You don't even have to prove it to me. She's like, I believe everything in the Bible. You don't have to prove anything to me. Well, that's not how I am. But if you're that way, you're going to hate the first 15 minutes of this. But you just have to stay with me because I'm telling you, it's worth it, okay? But I really need you to have your thinking caps on, all right? I would explain to you what I'm going to talk to you about, but just sit there a minute. You'll figure it out. Let's pray. We need God's help, and then we'll start. All right? Let's pray. God, now you've given us this word. And Lord, in this word, there is an inexhaustible amount of things for us to learn and glean and discern from it. And Lord, none of us in this room would ever come in here tonight and profess or think that we have grasped the depths of your word. And so, Lord, tonight we're going to look at something that we've never seen before. Probably most of us have never thought about before. And we want you to help us, Lord. Because you, you wrote it, and it's about you, and it'll help us know you better. And so, therefore, we want to know about it. And so, Lord, help us to uh, be able to understand and discern the things you want to show us. And we thank you in advance for giving us ears to hear and hearts to receive. In Jesus' name, amen. Okay, so if we, uh, Rod, you're going to have to go up there and help us. 
Yeah, you have to go fix this. Um, so your first blanks, do you really believe what the Bible says? Now, do you really believe what the Bible says? And the answer to that on a Sunday night is going to be, well, of course I believe what the Bible says. I wouldn't be at church on Sunday night if I didn't believe what the Bible says. But let me push you a little further. Does that include only the parts that you understand or that make sense to you? Because there's all sorts of things in the Scripture that you and me uh, are, have yet to understand or have yet to make sense of. Now, or do you believe that everything the Bible says is true? Everything. We're on the second slide. Now, you have undoubtedly, if you've been around here for any amount of time, heard me say before that everything that is in the Bible is there for a reason. That's your third blank. Everything that's in the Bible is there for a reason. There we go. Right there. Thank you. And I say that all the time. All the time. And I believe that with all my heart. And so I say that one of my heroes in the faith, Charles Spurgeon, he always said that when you're reading the Bible and you get to something you don't understand, stop and build a campfire and stay there until God gives you clarity. The problem is we live in a world where most of the time people don't have the patience uh, to pursue understanding of difficult things. So we just pass them by. Um, or we can't sort of fit it into what we're trying to do. Now, I want you to consider this for a minute. Consider a filter. A filter is something that we use. Uh, hold on. A filter is something that we use. Here, here we go. We'll, you, we'll go to this. All right, there. In this series, here's what we're going to do. We're going to ask the question, what happens when the undeniable intersects with the unexplainable? Now, it's really not unexplainable. It's just seemingly unexplainable. But it seems unexplainable when you first get to it. Because you think, well, I don't know what that means. Nobody knows what that means. That doesn't make any sense. That doesn't. And so, you know, we either just skip past it or we try to come up with something. But really what we're doing is we're, we're filtering filters are something that we use to eliminate things in order to get a desired result. So we put filters on our car to filter the oil or the fluids to keep the impurities out. Or you use a filter in the kitchen to filter one ingredient out of another ingredient to, to work for the specific uh, dish that you're trying to cook. Or, you know, we use filters in all sorts of different areas of life. We have filters on our, our email to, to rid our, our email accounts of things that we don't want. So we just use filters to take certain things away to get to a desired result. And they're good and they're beneficial. The problem is, is that today when it comes to reading the Bible... Biblical information is often filtered through certain presumptions and traditions that put it into a system that makes sense in our modern mind. So what we do is we read the Bible through the lens of, well, here's what I've always been taught, or here's what you know I've always heard, or here's what fits into the other things that I've already believed or, or sort of you know put into... Uh, my category, and so I just filter things through that. The problem is, is that that doesn't work when you hit a passage where God's trying to teach us something, and it's it. No matter how you try to filter it, it's not going to fit into your. Uh, it's not going to fit into your 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 viewpoint. Here's an example: Children will often ask this question. Uh, You'll be reading, say, the creation story in Genesis to kids, and they'll say, well, what was there before God made the world? I mean, that's how kids think. They, they hear the creation story, and they think they, they're listening to you explain how God created things, and so they say, well, what was there before 
God created the world. And then parents will, will respond and say, well, uh, we, the answer we would give is that God alone was there. That God by himself was there at creation. And we would say that when God is creating and he says, let us create, that it's God having a conversation within the Trinity. Right? Isn't that what we say? So God's in a sense talking to himself when he's creating. Well, that's true, but it's incomplete. What was there when God was creating? Was just God there? Or was there something else going on? Notice what the Bible says in Job chapter 38. Job chapter 38 the Scripture says, where were you when I laid the foundation of the earth? So it's clear who the speaker is, right? Because there's only one person who laid the foundation of the earth. Tell me if you have understanding who determined its measurements. Surely you know, or who stretched the line upon it? To what were its foundations fastened, or who laid its cornerstone? When the morning stars sang together, and all the sons of God shouted for joy. See how quickly you just turn the page? You just turn the page. You just pass that already? Who's, I mean, that is a shocking statement. I'm expecting you to go, hey, whoa, wait a minute. I'm not turning the page. What's happening? Job is saying that the morning stars sang together and all the sons of God shouted for joy. Who is that? Now, a lot of you just turned your filter on. And you said, well, here's what I know. I know that before God created, the only thing that was besides God was what? Angels. So it had to be angels because that's what makes sense to you. Well, the Bible says that the sons of God were with God before creation. Now, who are the sons of God? That's what I want to know. I want to know who the sons of God are and what exactly is going on. And if it were angels, why didn't God just say they were angels? Now, Let's suppose right here, just to kind of give you an indication of the, you know, the nature of the conversation that we're having. Let's suppose that you came to me and you said, Pastor, uh, I want to buy a new study Bible. And, uh, you know, what study Bibles would you recommend? Or, you know, I always keep study Bibles, good, dependable, trustworthy study Bibles in the bookstore for you to purchase. And so if you came to me and said, I need to get a good study Bible, there's a trustworthy study Bible, what would you what would you recommend? And I would say, well, uh, MacArthur Study Bible is a very good study Bible. The ESV Study Bible is a very good study Bible. Both of those very trustworthy. Two examples of two excellent study Bibles that I use all the time. But let's suppose that you had one of those study Bibles tonight and you looked at Job 38 verse 7 because you thought, I want to know who the sons of God are. And the morning stars. And you looked, here's what it would say, literally. It would say, morning stars and sons of God, period. And then here's the explanation. The angelic realm, God's ministering spirits. Now, I'm not about to say that I'm in any way, shape, or form smarter than John MacArthur. But what I am saying is that clearly, that's his way of saying I don't really want to get into it. Because that doesn't even make any sense. The angelic realm, God's ministering spirits, well, who? Well, well, what does that mean? I mean, that's not very specific. I mean, my question is, are these angels? Is that what these are? Is that who's there? Now, we know some things, all right? Because we got a filter on anyway, might as well use it. 
We know that there's a certain, in the unseen world, there's a hierarchy. Because we know there's a differentiation between archangel versus angel. We know that. So we know that, they're, that all angels aren't equal. Even, you know, non-fallen angels. And then we know amongst the fallen angels they're not equal. So we know there's a hierarchy. So we sort of got that because an archangel is clearly different from just a regular angel. Now, if these, if these sons of God, if these morning stars who shouted with joy at the creation of the world were angels, if they were angels, why didn't the Bible just use the word for angel? It's a very specific, very common word for angel, which means messenger. It is the obvious, common, whenever angels appear, the Bible's very clear, it's a messenger. That's what they are. But there's no word messenger in Job 38. It's not there. The phrase, sons of God, B'nai Elohim, is a phrase that's used to identify divine beings with a higher level of responsibility or jurisdiction. Now, you recognize in the Hebrew the word Elohim. You know that word because we refer to God sometimes as Elohim. That's one of the ways the Bible sometimes, you know, that is a, the Hebrew word for a divine being. So the definition of an Elohim is that they're non-human, non-material. They're a spiritual being. It is a generic term that describes a spiritual being. And so sometimes the word Elohim is used all over Scripture. Sometimes it's for a capital G-O-D, and sometimes it's for little G-O-D. So we've got this sons of Elohim. Let me give you two things to think about. First of all, in Job 38, the sons of God are referred to as morning stars. Morning stars. Okay? Now let's think for a moment about what a morning star is. A morning star is a star that one sees over the horizon just before the sun appears in the morning. Now, that's not earth-shattering information. How do we know what a morning star is? We know what a morning star is is because God, in His sovereign wisdom, determined to create something that is a morning star so that we would know what a morning star is. If He didn't make a morning star, we wouldn't know what it is right? We didn't just make up something and name it a morning star. It is a thing, and we know what it is because God made it. Do you agree with me? It's like a zebra. When I say zebra, what comes to your mind is only because God made one. If God didn't make a zebra and I said zebra, you'd just look at me like I was weird. So a morning star is something God created, which is why we know what it is. So what does a morning star signify? What does it mean, a morning star? It signifies new life, a new day, new birth, right? It's the, it's the, it comes over the horizon to signify, there, brand new, new life. It's a new day. So if a morning star is something that we know what it is because God has created it, and what it is is something that signifies that it's a new day, it's, it's new, Right? then wouldn't it make sense that the original morning stars, the sons of God, saw the beginning of life as we know it, the creation of the earth? In other words, wouldn't it make sense that if that's what was going on in creation, that God would call them morning stars? That makes perfect sense, right? Well, sure. Okay. Hang with me. That's number one. Number two, it's interesting that God called, uses this term sons to describe these divine beings. Why are these, 
why are these beings sons of God? Where did that term come from? Well, we know what a son of something is, right? Because God has created things in a specific order so that we have an understanding of what that is. So God basically taught us what a morning star is, and He also taught us what a son of something is, right? So, this family term is neither coincidental or inconsequential. Let me tell you something. That didn't just pop up. It it is not by any stretch of the imagination uh, just happened to be that they're called morning stars or that they're called sons of God. Like I said, everything that's in the Bible is there for a reason. It's up to us whether or not we want to spend the time and find out what the reason is. Now, I understand the fact that my wife doesn't care about, you know, what the rattle is or the noise is or how it works or how to fix it. You know, if I say, well, honey, I'm going to go out here and change oil. You should watch me so you could learn how to do it. She's like, you're out of your mind. She has no interest in that. Why? Because she's never going to change the oil. She knows that, and so she doesn't care. But what if... What if by learning how to change the oil in a car, you could become a more effective driver? You could become a safer driver, more efficient driver. You could, it could somehow enhance your driving ability. Then she would learn how to do it. See, the reason she doesn't care is because she doesn't see any usefulness in it. The reason why a lot of times when we start talking about all sorts of crazy uh, you know, uh, passages in the Bible, we just tune out is because we don't see any usefulness in it. Well, what's it going to change? Okay, so if we figure out all this talk about Job 38, what difference is it going to make? It's going to make a lot of difference. Because I wouldn't be wasting my time or your time if I wasn't absolutely convinced that going through this process is going to make you a more effective believer, a more effective follower. It's going to give you a greater understanding of the God whom you profess to love and follow. So we ought to figure this out. So it's not here for nothing. So could it be that God has an unseen family? Could that be? Now now listen, he used the term sons of God. He did that. According to Acts chapter 17, you know the Macedonian call. That text The Scripture says in that text that all humans are God's offspring. That all humans are God's offspring. That everything that He created that bears His image is His offspring. The zebras aren't His offspring. The coyotes aren't His offspring. But every person is His offspring. Whether follower or non-follower, according to Acts chapter 17, is His offspring. Now... Did God create the host of non-human divine beings whose domain is in the unseen realm? Did He create them? Well, of course He did. Because how else would they get there? So He made them. So if on earth, God's sort of way of uh, giving us understanding of things is whatever He creates that bears His image in any way is his offspring and we know that God created what we still haven't answered the question of these sons of God and these uh, these Elohim well because God created them he claims them as his sons in the same way we claim our children as sons and daughters because we played a part in their creation. You see, we call our children sons and daughters because God taught us to do that. That was His idea. And He did that as a picture of the way He feels about when He creates us, right? So He creates us and we're His offspring. And so we have sons and daughters. When we have children, we call them sons and daughters. Why? Because we participated in their creation, Are you with me? 
Yeah. So it makes sense. So he calls them morning stars. That means new birth or new day. And all this takes place at the creation event. Then he calls them sons of God because he obviously created them. And when he creates, he he creates his offspring. And he uses this term to, to show this familial relationship he has with them. Okay. Now look down here at Psalm 82. Psalm 82 says... God has taken his place in the divine council. In the midst of the gods, he holds judgment. Anybody got that verse on the wall in their house? You ever sung a song about that verse? You ever heard a sermon preached on that verse? You never heard a Sunday school class preached on that verse? Verse 2, how long... Will you judge unjustly and show partiality to the wicked? Pause. Give justice to the weak and the fatherless. Maintain the right of the afflicted and the destitute. Rescue the weak and the needy. Deliver them from the hand of the wicked. Then they, then they, they have neither knowledge nor understanding. They walk about in darkness. All the foundations of the earth are shaken. I said, you are gods, sons of the Most High, all of you, which is the... Uh, Nevertheless, like men, you shall die and fall like any prince. Arise, O God, judge the earth, for you shall inherit the nations. Okay. So what we have here in verse 1, we have God has taken his place. Big G God has taken his place in the divine council. In the midst of the gods, he holds judgment. Both big G God, little g God, in the original language, is the same word, Elohim. I know you're looking at me like, okay, help me. What are you trying to tell me? Well... Uh, well, what, what is happening here? What is the divine counsel in the midst of the Elohim? He holds judgment. Now, who is he talking about when he says, how long will you judge unjustly and show partiality to the wicked, give justice to the weak and the fatherless? Okay, all of this is happening Within the, the, in, in the presence of this divine council, okay, which our filter is going to tell us, well, they're just angels. Well, or if you start reading commentaries about this, it's going to say, well, you know, God's uh, speaking to other members of the Trinity. Well, no, that's impossible. That would make it heresy because in verses 2 through 4, uh, whoever God's speaking to is Uh, acting wickedly and God never acts wickedly so that's impossible they can't be the trinity and then at the end of the psalm it makes it evidence that Elohim this Elohim is being chastened and those that are being chastened were given some sort of Authority over nations of the earth. You see, the, who's, who are these people that are being, uh, that are judging unjustly and being wicked, that are overlooking the needy? And, well, it can't be talking about Israel because nowhere in the Bible was Israel given authority over other nations. So that's impossible. So when you just start reeling through this and you just start going, okay, well, that doesn't make sense, that doesn't make sense, that doesn't make sense, that doesn't make sense, so maybe we ought to just skip the whole thing. Well, first of all, if we know this, they're not human rulers because they're referred to as Elohim, which can only refer to spiritual beings that reside in the spirit realm. 
And again, the word messenger is not used, which is used everywhere in the Bible where there are angels. It's always messenger. We don't have that. So, who are these Elohim called the sons of God, the divine council? Who, who, who are we talking about? Well, we can use the process of elimination to help us here. First of all, they're not Yahweh, the God we worship. We know that. You see, the Bible makes that clear. 1 Kings 8, 23. O Lord God of Israel, there is no God like you in heaven, above earth, beneath the earth, keeping covenant and showing steadfast love to your servants who walk before you with all their heart. Uh, Psalm 97, 9. For you, O Lord, are most high over all the earth. You are exalted far above all gods. Now, for all of my life, when I read a verse like Psalm 97, 9, do you know what I think? All of my life, I've always thought, well... Whenever God refers to God's little G gods, he's talking about the little statues that people make. You know, these little wooden things or these little molded images or whatever they are. They're just these false images that, you know, that God's talking about. But here's the problem. Those aren't spirit beings. Whenever the Bible's talking about little wooden images, the Bible never calls those Elohim. Elohim has to be a spiritual being. So now my question is, if that's true, then Psalm 97.9 is saying, for you, O Lord, for you, Yahweh, King of kings and Lord of lords, Alpha and Omega, God, are most high over all the earth and you are exalted over all other gods, all other spiritual beings. So they're clearly spiritual beings created by God who, well, they reside with Him in the heavenly realm. That we know. They have free will just like you and I do. See, we know that about angels, right? Angels have free will. We know that because that's how Satan and the demons fell from heaven. They rebelled against God. Well, you can't rebel against God unless you have free will, right? You have to have free will to do that. So we know, in other words, I'm just telling you that when you start putting the pieces of the puzzle together of the things that we know about God based on what God tells us about how He does things, then all these things start to line up into something we never talked about before. They have free will. They, they're involved in accomplishing God's will just like you and I. I was sitting there right before service thinking about uh, Daniel chapter 4. You remember that passage in Daniel chapter 4 where um, uh, God lowers judgment on Nebuchadnezzar and gives him the mind of a beast, right? And he starts running around the field like a madman. You all remember that, right? We all know that story. Let me read you a passage of Scripture. Daniel chapter 4, write this down. Daniel 4, 17. So in case you think I've lost my mind, you can go home and read it. So when the decision is made about Nebuchadnezzar, the Bible says, Daniel 4, 17, this decision is by the decree of the watchers and the sentence by the word of the holy ones in order that the living may know that the Most High rules in the kingdom of men, gives it to whomever He will, and sets over it the lowest of men. Do you know what that says? That says that God gave the decision of exactly what the punishment would be to Nebuchadnezzar over to the watchers. Remember, Psalm 82 says he's, in the, he's with the divine council. Job 38 says that when he created, there was this uh, heavenly council of sons of God that were shouting like morning stars. 
Whoever they are, they're involved in accomplishing God's will just like you and I are. And they're clearly above the angels. Clearly. They're not messengers. They're Elohim. There is a, there is a, a vast difference between a messenger and an Elohim. You could never, ever refer to the God we worship as a messenger. Never. It would be blasphemous. But we, we call him Elohim. We have, you know, we sing songs about Elohim. And God used the same term to talk about these created beings. Okay, so take a breath, all right? Why does all this matter? I have a headache. Trust me, you don't have a headache nearly like I had when I was putting this together. What are the implications of all this information? Or, or, or does it even matter at all? Or how is this going to change my daily life or the way I function? Okay. Fair question. Let's talk about that. Well, the answer is that these truths have everything to do with our understanding of who God is and how we relate to Him and what our purpose on earth is. You see, this is one of the things that we all know is true, but we, we don't really talk about it because the truth is we don't really know how to talk about it because we don't know what to say about it. But we all know it's true. That one of the great lackings in Christianity is that we don't know what to do with the supernatural. And in particular, one of the things that frustrates me more than anything else is, is that when believers talk about heaven, it doesn't sound that great. Have you ever tried to talk to an unbeliever about heaven? And what do we always say? We say things like, oh, you know, heaven's going to be amazing. Jesus is going to be there. They're like, I don't care about that. And then we go, but there's going to be no more tears. There's going to be no more sorrow. There's going to be... And so the, our go-to example is, well, all these bad things are not going to be there. So the best we can muster about heaven is, is that it's going to be void of bad things. That's all we got. Folks, that is a disaster. I mean, that is appalling. That's not the description of heaven. You think, I mean, heaven blows that out of the water. Remember last summer I preached a series about heaven and I, I used uh, the Garden of Eden and we talked about, and so many people were like, oh my goodness, I never saw that. I never knew that. I mean, heaven is so amazing. You can't even begin to describe it, but you got to come up with something. But see, we just don't, you know, we... We just go, well, you know, I don't know. There's going to be a lot of singing, floating, fluffy stuff, wings, halos. No. Listen, we, if you can, if you walk next week, especially the week after that, you're going to begin to see the supernatural things that God has created for us in such a new way. Your, 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 your excitement about what awaits you is going to begin to captivate you in such a new and fresh way. You'll see things in Scripture that you've known all your life and you'll see in a brand new way and think, oh my goodness. First of all, God's heavenly counsel is a template for how he relates to his earthly family. This heavenly counsel. That I mean I haven't even scratched the surface. I, I'm, just, I'm just using this because it's the allotted time I have. For you to, to just sort of wet your palate. And to make you realize okay. If you leave here tonight and go, there's something that I'm not fully understanding that's going on there. So let's walk through this and find out that I've been successful. Okay? 
It's a template for how he relates to his earthly family. So therefore, it would be super helpful if we understood that. Because it would explain some things to us about how he relates to us, wouldn't it? Yes, it would. God didn't need a heavenly counsel. He wanted one. You see, this is where you start reeling back and going, okay, now let's think about this for a second. So God has a heavenly counsel, and we're not really sure what this heavenly counsel is, and we're not really sure what they do, but we know they reside in heaven. We know they're spirit beings, they're Elohim. We know they have free will. We know that. We know that they're involved in accomplishing things for God like we are. We know that they're above the angels. But he didn't need them, but he wanted them. Well, well, why are they there? And isn't there this thing inside of you that's kind of bothered by what I'm talking about tonight? And you're thinking to yourself, because it almost sounds like, you know, God needs help. Now, you know me better than that. Just like God didn't create us because he needed us, but because he wanted us. He didn't need us. He didn't need... He didn't need us to help him do anything. He decided sheerly out of his sovereign will and purpose that he was going to create humans in his own image. And he did that just because he wanted to do it. Not because there was anything we could offer, anything he was uh, uh, lacking in, anything that he needed. No. Contrary. He created us knowing full well what a pain in his neck we were going to be. Because he wanted to, for his glory. So everything that God creates is not because it is never about him needing, it's only about him wanting. It's about creating opportunity for his glory. Also, the Bible is clear that God uses lesser beings to get things done on earth, so why would it be so surprising that he would do the same thing in the heavenly realm? In other words, God creates humans. He gives humans free will. He knows what humans will do with free will, but he freely gives it to them. And be, I mean, just, you know, I'm just the kind of person that asks questions. I want to know why is there a tree in the garden? Why is it there? Why is there, when God created Eden, why did he put a tree there? Why didn't he just make a beautiful garden with no tree? Then we wouldn't be in the mess we're in now, right? He could have done that, but he didn't do that. Why did he put the tree there? The tree had to be there. Why? Because if there's no tree, there's no love. There's no relationship. You take the tree out of the garden and all we are is what? Robots. Right? Right? Okay. God's not interested in robots. He's got, he's got all sorts of animal robots. He didn't want that. He wanted a relationship. In order to have a relationship, you got to have free will. You don't have free will. If there's no choice, there's no love. So God creates in the heavenly realm the same way. And Satan and, and his followers decided they didn't want God, so they left. But that didn't stop God from creating them and giving them free will because he, he has relationship with them. And so what does God do with us? Here we are. We have free will. We've chosen to exercise it. We created a, a, a disaster, a mess that we couldn't fix. We've corrupted everything and messed everything up. But that didn't, that didn't stop God. No, he uses us. See, if God chose to, he could just speak out loud to all the people who need the gospel to give everyone the encouragement they need to follow him. Why in the world would God have a system whereby me and you would be his ambassadors? I mean, can you think of a crazier plan than that? Here's what I'm going to do. I'm going to create people. 
They're going to have free will because I want a relationship with them. I'm going to put them in a perfect environment. They're going to rebel against me in a perfect environment. And they're going to choose to to follow their own way and be their own God and pursue their own ends. And that's what they're going to do. And God's going to, so God says, but what I'm going to do is I'm going to redeem them. And then those who I redeem, I'm going to use as my ambassadors to those who are yet unredeemed. So what God is doing is he's accomplishing his sovereign purpose of reconciliation with lesser fallen people. He didn't need, I mean, he could have done all that without us, right? He didn't need us. He could have made the cloud spell out, I am God, you're going to die in your sin if you don't repent and follow me. Done. But he didn't do that. He says, me and you are going to go and tell people that's what he's going to do. He could persuade people to love others by putting his voice right into their heads. See, he didn't need to to give us the great commandment and, and, and then command us then to follow that and give us free will to determine whether or not we were going to follow it or not. He could have just programmed it right into our head to where we would just open our mouth, words would fly out, and we'd just love each other. If that's what his end goal was, to get people to love each other, he could have just forced that and made it happen. But he didn't do that. He uses us. And he says things like, Well, the world's going to know that you're my disciples indeed by the way that you love one another. Now, that that blows my mind. You mean a perfect, holy God that made everything is going to put His image, His reputation, if you will, on the line, and we're going to be the ones that are going to show the world whether, uh, whether we're His disciples by the way we love each other? He could just do it Himself. But he doesn't. He said, no, I'm going to use you to do it. So why would it be so crazy that God in heaven would have created beings around him that he allows to participate with him in a very similar way, that have free will, that he allows. Now listen, let me don't get carried away here. Secondly, God could just, how about this? He could just predetermine. He just predetermined all the events and make everything turn out the way he wants. But he doesn't do that. Now, there are people out there that believe he does. Isn't that convenient? Isn't that a convenient thing to dream up? Here's what we're going to believe. We're going to believe that God predetermines everything. So everything that I do and everything that happens in my life is predetermined by God. Well, that's great because you know what that does? So basically what you're doing is expunging yourself from all responsibility and saying, well, all the sin I committed, well, God predetermined it. So it really wasn't me committing the sin. It was God predetermined that I would sin. Now, is that what happened? Negative. That's not what happened. You and me chose to sin. That's what happened. Let's make sure we're clear. We chose to sin. And anybody that tries to tell you that it's all predetermined is just trying to put all their guilt on God. You got free will, ladies and gentlemen. You wake up every day and make choices about what you're going to do, decisions you're going to make, how you're going to live every day. And you have free will to do that. God didn't have to give you that, but he does. Why? That ought to tell us something about God. It ought to tell us. See, we're learning tonight about things about God that we need to know. You need to understand that about God. That will motivate you tomorrow to be a better follower of him, to realize that you have freedom to make choices and you are held accountable for the choices that you make and God's not forcing you to do anything. Okay? So how about 1 Kings 22? Just want to make sure before we end tonight, just want to make sure that, you know, we, we got this... We're completely nailed down in our confusion. Okay? Let me, give you, let me just set the table for you, okay? 
In 1 Kings 22, what you have the story of is the king of Israel and the king of Judah are coming together and deciding that they're going to collaborate and attack Ramoth Gilead. It's a very famous story. Lots of people talk about this, preach on this, teach on this. This isn't a, a, anything new. And so you have Ahab is one king and Jehoshaphat is the other king. So they collaborate. Of course, Ahab is a totally wicked, evil king. And so they collaborate and decide they're going to attack Ramoth Gilead. But they decide, well, before we attack them, let's ask the prophets whether or not we're going to be successful. So they go to Ahab's prophets and they say, well, we're, we're going to come together and collaborate and we're going to attack Ramoth Gilead. What's going to happen? And of course, all of Ahab's, you know, bozo prophets go, oh, you're going to be fine. Everything's going to be good. You're going to win. Well, they both know that these guys are only saying what, what they think that they want them to hear, right? So, Jehoshaphat says, well, let's ask God's prophet what's going to happen, okay? 1 Kings twenty two nineteen. So, they ask God's prophet, Micaiah. And Micaiah said, therefore, hear the word of the Lord. I saw the Lord sitting on his throne and all the host of heaven standing beside him on his right hand and on his left. And the Lord said, who will entice Ahab that he may go up from the and fall at Ramoth Gilead? Now, just stop there. Who is asking this question? All right, we'll start over again. And the Lord said, Who will entice Ahab? So God, Yahweh, is speaking, and he's asking a very specific question. Who is going to entice Ahab so that he falls at Ramoth Gilead? Now, who is God speaking to? Well, clearly, he's sitting Uh, amongst this, uh, I saw the Lord sitting on his throne and the host of heaven was on his right and his left. So he's speaking to this heavenly host on his right and his left. And he's asking the question, who's going to entice him so that he will fall? And one said one thing and another said another. Who is speaking to God? The heavenly host. They're having a conversation. Verse 21, then a spirit came forward and stood before the Lord saying, I will entice him. And the Lord said to him, by what means? And he said, I will go out and will be a lying spirit in the mouth of all his prophets. And he said, and so then the Lord said, you are to entice him and you shall succeed. Go out and do so. Verse 23 Now, therefore, behold, the Lord has put a lying spirit in the mouth of all these, your prophets. The Lord has declared disaster for you. All right. How's your filter doing? So let's just make sure we're all on the same page here. Your Bible in your hand says... That God, surrounded by the heavenly host, has a conversation with the heavenly host. And God says, well, who's going to go down there and entice Ahab so he falls? And somebody says this, and somebody says that, and one spirit says this, and another spirit says that. And then a spirit comes forward and says, I'll do it. I'll go down there, and I'll put a lying spirit within his tongue, and na 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 And God says, okay, that sounds good. You do that. And then Micaiah declares, so that's what's done, and that's it. There's nothing you can do about it. Now, what's your filter telling you about that little operation right there? Is You're saying God's just having a conversation with the angels? Now, now hold on now. So these aren't messengers... Messengers don't make decisions. There's something else going on here. Whoever this is, they have liberty to participate in what God's doing. 
Now, is this infringing on God's power and authority? Oh, no. No, no. So here's what's clear. The unseen world has structure, just like earth. There's a hierarchy. There's a structure here. These aren't messengers. No, that doesn't, that, that doesn't fly. God is sovereign and in total control, yet he allows others to participate. Now, let me ask you a question. Who determined that Ahab was going to attack Ramoth Gilead? God. Who determined that Ahab was going to fail when he attacked Ramoth Gilead? God. God sovereignly determined what was going to happen and what the outcome was going to be, but what God did was allowed the heavenly host to participate in the way it came about. Now, let me ask you a question. When you share the gospel with somebody and they receive Christ, who determined that they were going to cross your path that day? God did. Who determines whether or not that person is going to become a Christian or not? God did. In other words, God sovereignly put the gospel before that person, is sovereignly working in the life of that person, but he allows you and me to participate. We don't change his sovereign purposes, but we participate in them. Nothing about what happened in 1 Kings 22 changes the structure of what God has laid out, but the way in which he does. In other words, one spirit stood up and said, well, I'll do it. Well, okay. So how many people walked past you in your lifetime that you had the opportunity to lead to Christ, but you didn't say you'd do it? And you just kept on walking because you were too worried about where you were trying to go. And what you didn't know is that an opportunity just went right by you that you had to participate in something that was going to last for all eternity. Hello? Right? Yes. And the same thing happens in heaven. God allows lesser beings to participate in what's he, what he's doing. Nothing can stop his divine plan. Nothing. But our choices determine the degree to which we participate. You see, the, the, the thing that drives me crazy is that we want these neat lines in the sand that we feel comfortable in. And so people just start making up junk and drawing lines. And so we have all these denominations and all these theories and all these theologies and all these doctrines. And half of it is just a bunch of man-made, man-centered nonsense. And so we come up with some theology like, well, you know, uh, God predetermined everything. And it doesn't matter what we do or don't do. He's just going to do it anyway. So we don't need to do anything. It's just going to happen. That's the way God did it. That is the biggest excuse I've ever heard in my life. I mean, it's absurd to think about. No. You and me have an opportunity to participate. And what determines the degree to how we participate is whether or not we stand up and say, well, I'll do it. I'll do it. You see, God has purposed in his heart before the foundations of the world that the gospel is going to go certain places this year. Now you have an opportunity to go there and be a part of it or to not. It's not going to change whether the gospel gets there. The only thing that's yet to be determined is are you going to be part of it or not going to be part of it? God's determined to win people in your neighborhood to Christ. Now, you can, you can choose to do nothing, and God will send somebody else, and he'll keep asking until somebody stands up and says, I'll do it. God's not going to change his plan, but here's the thing. You and me have free will to make choices about whether or not we're going to be a part of it. Yeah. And you see, we, we, we know this, but we don't really think of it in this way. We don't, we don't really see God giving us these opportunities to this degree. 
See, if we have no freedom to choose, there could be no love. There could be no love. I cannot stress that enough. Love cannot exist apart from choice. If you have no choice, you are a robot, and robots do not love. So what if there is much more going on in the spiritual realm than we ever imagined? And what if what's going on in the spiritual realm, if we can begin to understand some things about it, hey, not everything, just some things about it. If we could begin to understand some things about what's happening in the heavenly realm right now, we could learn some things about what God's doing on earth because everything that I've learned about the heavenly realm is mirrored here and everything I learn about there I go oh so that's how that works here everything whatever he does there he does here and these two things work perfectly together to open up our consciousness to There may be a lot of things happening around us. Listen, I'm not talking about spiritual warfare. I'm I'm talking about something way, 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 way bigger than that. No, no. I'm talking about things in the heavenly realm that in the midst of God's reign... He has a council around him and there's there's opportunities and engagement with this heavenly realm in Scripture that begins to explain to us the degree to which, oh, it's, listen, we, we have destroyed the concept of being his ambassadors. It's so much bigger than that, y'all. He has given us as his children such opportunity to participate in what He is doing, that when you begin to get a hold of that, it will radically change the way that you not only see the world around you, but the way that you live every day and the way that you make the choices that you make. You will stop because you know why no one wants to think about this? It's because we don't want the responsibility. We don't want the pressure. I'd rather just believe everything's predetermined so I can just go to McDonald's every day and everybody else can go to hell. I'm just going to worry about me. I'm just going to focus on my little thing and my little world. I mean, if I like somebody, I mean, if I feel like it, I mean, but I'm not going to go out of my way. I mean, I'm not going to sacrifice. I mean, I'm not going to. But when we start to realize the degree to which what God has invited us into as His children, when He called you a son or a daughter, what happened at that point, what He really, really meant when He said, you're part of my family now, let me start laying down what it means to be a co-heir of Christ. Let me just show you what I'm in the process of doing. You have no idea what tomorrow means in light of eternity if you begin to understand what I'm talking about tonight. It will blow your mind. You'll say, wow. You know that passage, that famous passage of 2 Kings 6 where Elisha's there with his servant and they're in the house and the the house is surrounded by this massive army on every side all the way around. And the, the Elisha's servant, now I understand this Elisha's servant This is the guy who, you know, he answered the door when Naaman came riding up with all his chariots and all his leprosy. And he's the one that, you know, he said, uh, Elisha said, go dunk in the Jordan River seven times and you'll be clean. And I mean, this guy knows Elisha. And he's standing there in the front of the house looking out the window. And he's looking at this army that's all the way around him. And he's thinking, it's me and Elijah. And this whole army is fixing to get us. And he starts to panic. And then Elisha prays and says, Lord, please, 
open his eyes that he may see. And the Bible says the Lord opened his eyes and the young man saw and behold, the mountain was filled with horses and chariots of fire all around Elisha and him. That what he didn't realize, what Elisha knew that that servant didn't know, was, hey man, there's a whole lot more going on here than meets the human eye. And God is on the scene. And you don't need to fret and panic and worry and freak out. He's got this thing, okay? He's got it. And my prayer for you and me in this conversation I'm calling unseen is that may God open our eyes to see so that we'll never be able to think about the Bible the same way again. That He'll open our eyes the way He opened the eyes of that servant that day. And when you go to school tomorrow, you go to work tomorrow, you go to the place, you go in the grocery store tomorrow, and there's people going down every aisle pushing their buggy, and they're buying cabbage, and they're buying cereal, and they're buying fruitcakes, and, and ice cream, and every other thing under the sun. And all you see is people shopping for groceries or people going down the hallways of your school or, or people sitting in cubicles next to you at work or customers driving through the drive through at work. And you just see people all the time. And you're seeing people, 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 people. But what you don't know is those aren't just people. They're people God loves. They're people God is working in their life. They're people God wants to redeem. They're people God slaughtered his son for. And what you don't realize, what I don't realize, there's an army all the way around you that's working, protecting you, and, and spurring you on to engage yourself, to stand up and say, well, I'll talk to that lady over there. Well, I'll talk to that man over there. Well, I'll go over there and help that person mow their grass, or I'll go over there and speak to them about Jesus. That you and me, we don't realize that we're reading the Bible like it's this two-dimensional thing, like we're reading some kind of storybook thing about something that happened somewhere in the past, and the Bible's saying, no, there's way more than that. You're engaged in a spiritual battle, and you have an opportunity, and there's, there is, there's spiritual beings all around engaged in this battle, and you can jump in. You have the freedom to participate in ways you cannot believe. Let's pray. Father, thank you for tonight.